0: Welcome to A Life in Biography. I'm calling this one Round Five. Uh, This deals with my correspondence with Samuel R. Delaney, otherwise known to me now as Chip. I'm not going to go into a long recap of the four previous podcasts that began with the title The Ethics of Biography. I'll simply say that in the last letter that uh, Chip wrote to me, Uh, He was pointing out what he thought was a near-fatal error, our um, not treating Sontag in a sense as a colleague, as someone to share things with, uh, rather than setting up a kind of barrier. And I already in some letters tried to explain to him why Sontag was not inclusive. She did not think of us as part of her literary community at all, uh, and that we get nowhere even trying to establish such a bridge with her. Anyway, here's my letter of February 17, 1997, replying to his last letter. So this is a correspondence that's been going on for more than two months, began in December of 1996. And I write to him, Dear Chip, the second paragraph is really the beginning of this letter. I was finishing the letter when you called and sent your fax. I want to think more about your facts before replying to it, but I want to repeat what I said on the phone. If we were to show Sontag a draft of our book, she would have the option of enjoining publication. Several biographies have been stopped in precisely this way. We could not take that risk for ourselves and W. W. Norton would hold us liable, I fear, if we made such a fundamental mistake. You may be right about Wiley, that's Sontag's agent, Andrew Wiley. He may have wanted an, insur- an assurance that Sontag would have the opportunity to read our book before it went to press. I can see why you think that would be an appropriate thing for us to do, but for the legal reasons, we, for legal reasons, we simply cannot take that risk. I was very moved by the long letter you sent to me that you should take such care in responding to my thoughts is gratifying. I didn't think anyone wrote long letters anymore. I keep hearing people say that the letter form is dying. Vivian Gornick suggests that much in a recent essay, but I suspect at least some writers will find the letter form indispensable. I do. I'm going to respond to your January 12th and New Year's letters. I haven't read the material from The Motion of Light and Water or The Tale of Plagues and Carnivals, his books. So I want to save my responses to those pieces for another letter. I was so disturbed by your P.S., the postscript he wrote to his previous letter, that I sent you copies of the letters we had sent to Sontag and her agent. I know Carol, I'm referring to our mutual friend, Carol Klein, also a biographer who was working on Doris Lessing. I know Carol has talked to you about my feelings, but I want to put them in writing to you directly. You mentioned being shown a letter from Sontag asking people not to cooperate with Lisa and me, Lisa Paddock, my wife and co-author. You say, she's, you say she says we did not get in touch with her. If you have her letter, could you send it to me or at least quote from it? I feel that if this is what Sontag is saying, then the circumstances in which we are writing the biography have been grossly misrepresented. It is very disturbing to think that you and others have formed an impression that is damaging to my reputation and Lisa's. Even if we re- correct the record for you, I'm afraid the damage has been done." When we write or speak to people close to Sontag, they will naturally not want to bother even replying to us. Indeed, there are at least a dozen people who have not answered our requests for interviews, even though we have sent them at least two letters and our letters have not been returned. The fact that certain people won't speak with us is not hard to take. That's, that is their right. What is hard to take is that they are under the impression that we did not even have the courtesy to consult Susan Sontag. I sense, by the way, that the letter you saw has been in circulation for some time, or remarks by Sontag to that effect have been circulated since the number of non-responses has been unusually high judging by the standards of my own unauthorized biographies. We wrote, for example, to Robert Silvers. I interviewed him for my Lillian Hellman biography. I tried to interview him for my Norman Mailer biography, but he declined, saying that he did not wish to speak about friends who were still living. This time he has not responded to letters, and I have always known him to be courteous, if not always willing to cooperate with my projects. The same may be the case with Robert Brustein. He has declined to be interviewed for some of my other biographies, but he wrote to say he would speak with us, if only about Sontag's work, at the American Repertory Theater. He did not feel he could speak about their friendship because our biography was unauthorized. We wrote back saying we respected his decision. Since then, we have been trying to schedule an interview with him, but he has been unresponsive. He is a busy man, and we may be reading too much into his silence, but I wouldn't bet on it. Let me go over the chronology of our decision to write a biography of Sontag. In the summer of 1995, we read everything Sontag has ever written and wrote, and wrote a proposal. Norton brought it, uh, bought it in the autumn. Our editor, Jerry Howard, said he was impressed with our command of Sontag's work and our perspective on her life. He specifically said that he bought the proposal because we were taking the high road, in quotation marks. He wasn't interested in a sensational book, though he recognized that there were areas of Sontag's life that we would have to handle with great sensitivity. We did not write Sontag until March 1996, shortly after the details of the contract were finally worked out. The details took a long time, and we simply were not prepared to approach her until we knew exactly what kind of book we were contracted to write. We even had a lengthy session at Norton going over the ground rules. I have never had a publisher who showed so much care and so much awareness of what it means to do a biography of a living figure. Then we wrote to Sontag. We waited. Several months passed. We wrote again. Then we heard from her agent. Then we responded to her agent. This is the correspondence I sent to you. There is one other letter I did not send because it is from a lawyer at Millbank Tweed. In January, he wrote to W.W. W. Norton on Sontag's behalf, putting the publisher on notice, his word. The letter says that we are unknown to Sontag and that she suspects that we are aiming to provoke controversy by invading her privacy and the privacy of her friends. The letter also states that she has no reason to suppose we are qualified to write her biography. The lawyer says our book will be scrutinized and Miss Sontag's rights scrupulously defended. Norton's vice president has written a short letter to say that Norton and the authors plan to produce a responsible book. The Milbank Tweed letter is the kind meant to frighten publishers and authors. I had a similar experience with my Gellhorn biography. My publisher, Doubleday, felt threatened and dropped the book. St. Martin's Press bought it and had their lawyers vet the book. What is troubling about the Milbank Tweed letter is that it again misrepresents us. It is true we are unknown to Sontag in the sense that we are not friends, and she has probably not read anything we published. But nearly a year ago, we offered to send our publications. I've published five biographies. Does that make me qualified to write Sontag's biography? Certainly, the figures I've written about have been as complex as Sontag. Doris Lessing thought I did a superb job on Rebecca West's biography. Leon praised my mailer. But is that what Sontag means by qualified? The phrase, I believe, is purposely ambiguous. To some extent, all biographies are an invasion of privacy. Controversial? What biography is not controversial? With someone like Sontag, there will inevitably be a broad range of viewpoints, it would be clearer if Sontag said she does not want a biography. Period. I have to be frank and tell you we would still do the biography. That is what we. Did, that is why we did not ask her permission in the first place. But we wanted to interview her, and we wanted her to know us. I don't think the idea of authorization or of people thinking of us as insiders or her friends. I don't like that idea. Meant. I made that clear in my last letter, but that is a far cry from separating ourselves from Sontag. We want others to perceive us as independent of Sontag, but not hostile to her. We want her to correct errors we might make, and in interviews with her, we would raise doubtful issues that we would want her to comment on. But not seeing us, by not seeing us, she will deprive herself uh, of a valuable resource. I think that in my last letter I emphasized the idea of independence so much that I conveyed to you the impression that, that, we, that we did not want to see Sontag. If I had gone more fully into the chronology I have outlined here, I could have spared your feelings that we were cutting ourselves off from our subject. No, our subject has cut us off and set in motion a misrepresentation of us that will do us a great deal of harm, but it won't prevent us doing the biography. This biography of Sontag is my third biography of a living figure. Each time an attempt has been made to intimidate me. In Mailer's case, it was his agent, Scott Meredith. To Mailer's everlasting credit, he stepped in and put a stop to it, and I got on with my book. I hope it is not too late for Sontag to do something similar. Mailer never approved of my project, but he did not try to prevent me from doing it. Indeed, I learned while in Hawaii that he once told a friend that I had written the best piece on his biography of Marilyn Monroe he had ever read. This bit of information was a delayed compliment that means a great deal to me, even though I finished my biography of him more than six years ago. In your PS, you raise a great concern about accuracy and getting the facts right. Even if Sontag ends up not seeing us, there may be certain facts we would want to check with her, that is, if she were willing to respond. If there are issues or facts in dispute, one can lay out the evidence or one can choose not to deal with those issues or facts. It depends on how important they are to the biography. But I have to say that Sontag may not always be accurate about her own life. She can misremember events, even as a biographer can get them wrong. I have often found this to be true. I have never been able to take a subject's word for it. If I can get the subject to respond, I certainly want to. But my subjects are not infallible. You pointed out that I had misspelled your name. I will point out that in your letter, you consistently misspell Farrar Strauss, adding an S, making it S-T-R-A-U-S-S. We all make mistakes, and I'm sure Sante could save Lisa and me from making some. We would welcome correction. When I have interviewed people, I routine, routinely send them drafts of chapters in which they appear or are quoted. Those interviewees who respond almost always make the chapters better, not necessarily more accurate, but more pleasing on the page. We could certainly accord Sontag the same courtesy in showing her passages based on what she told us. You say in your PS that you were sending Sontag a copy of your letter to me. I hope you will tell me what she says. My only regret is that your letter was written under the impression that we had not contacted her. Now I am returning to the front end of your January 12th letter. You had a world-class sore throat. I've been recovering from a bad cold this week, and Lisa has just gotten one, most likely from me. Carla has also been croaking with her version of the season's illness. Thanks for answering my questions about your interview with Sontag. I was puzzled by Carla's saying that Sontag was not doing interviews on The Volcano Lover. Carla was Sontag's assistant. I have to interject here that Benjamin Moser, who, did, who has done Sontag's biography, interviewed Carla. And Carla told him a completely fanciful story about uh, us contacting her. We never, we never contacted Carla. That's a, another story in itself. But we had no dealings with her at all. And she made up, completely made up a story about us. Um, as I said in a previous podcast, we wrote to Moser's publisher and got that stuff taken out of the book. Because it wasn't a controversy about who said what, it was about a fictional event. So, to go back to the letter, I was puzzled by Carlos saying that Sontag was not doing interviews on the Volcano Lover. She did several for the New York Times Magazine, NPR, Canadian Radio, and a few others I've seen in print. Perhaps you called before she changed her mind. One line in your letter really hurts when you say that I don't seem to recognize that Sontag and I are in the same business as persons of letters. But I do recognize that. I don't think she does. To be honest, I don't think that she finds either Lisa or me worthy. She chose to respond first through her agent and then through her lawyers. She has her lawyers say point blank that she has no reason to think we are qualified and that she does not know us. Lisa, by the way, has a PhD in English and she has written many literary essays including a splendid piece on Emily Dickinson, as well as a history of the Supreme Court. This was all spelled out in our letter to her. We did not expect her to welcome us with open arms. We were even prepared not to get any cooperation from her at all. But now the situation is worse. We stand accused of being so disrespectful that we did not even contact her. If you are under this impressionship, think of how many other people close friends of hers have that impression. I'm sure that this misrepresentation has already become a fixed fact in many people's minds. I can understand you're not wanting to send the transcript of your interview without Sontag's permission. He had done an interview with her. After all, it might seem devious to her that you interviewed her and then turned over your material to other writers without consulting her. All I meant to say to you is that I was not going to contact her to ask for permission." she might well say if she replied why are you asking me you're asking her is as tantamount to giving us a vote of confidence confidence i didn't did not expect you to do that that's why i said i thought i would probably never see your transcript i wasn't going to ask you to do that for me biographers do have to earn trust i think that is one thing you were telling me The way I have earned trust has been to interview people, show them my work, and rely on them, often without asking them to speak on my behalf. Biographers need such recommendations, yet I don't want my interviewees to think that I am just using them. When you wrote that you hoped to influence Santeg on my behalf, I was deeply touched. I didn't expect you to do that, especially since you have reservations about the way I work. You are a very generous person, and I'm very grateful for your help. I don't want to minimize your troubles with people who get the details of your life wrong. There are biographers as sloppy as the people who have given you grief. I don't think Carol or Mary and me, just like two examples of biographers I admire, could treat you that way. Strangely enough, it is often the academics who are not biographers who often get the simplest facts wrong. It is as if they are above fact-gathering, when in truth, they are far below it. On the one hand, the people at Gale Research, Lisa and I do several projects for them, are first-rate. So I'm not surprised to learn of your own positive experience with them. I was fascinated about what you said about DISH, or is it DISH, D-I-S-C-H, and then he has a footnote. It is, of course, Thomas M. DISH, D-I-S-C-H. Uh, February 1940 to July 2008, who used his middle initial for his prose and Thomas Dish for his poetry. Born in Des Moines, Iowa, a few years after the death of his partner, Charles Naylor, from malignant melanoma, he committed suicide in New York City. That's um, uh, Samuel Delaney's footnote. I was fascinated, to go back to my letter, I was fascinated about what you said about Dish. Scholars with no sense of biography often get the ideas wrong, too. In fact, that is why I turned from literary criticism to biography. My biographies contain literary criticism, but it's far different from what I used to write when I was an assistant professor writing articles to get tenure. Page 8 of your letter suggests that perhaps we are not as far apart on issues as I thought. I will read the introduction to your autobiography and the story about the biographer. Did I mention that I have published an annotated bibliography of writing about biography? I was not aware of your piece, or I would have included it in my bibliography, which has a section on fiction that treats the subjects of biographers and biography. I should also mention that I bought your Longer Views. That's a book of Delaney's. I'm interested to see what you make of Artaud and enthusiasm you have in common with Sontag. You mentioned the warm relationship between Boswell and Johnson. Yes, Boswell had great advantages, but he also presented to Johnson who is Boswellized. A very different Johnson appears in other sources. I'm not criticizing Boswell. I love his book so much as I'm saying that a certain price is also paid for that kind of intimacy. One could teach an interesting class using Boswell and some of Johnson's subsequent biographers. John Wayne and Jonathan Bate, for example. I'm sorry, Walter Jackson Bate, not Jonathan Bate, for example. I'm going to be teaching a course on biography at Baruch this summer, end of July or end of August. If you're going to be in the city, would you like to make a guest appearance? The class could discuss your story about a biographer. Unfortunately, that never happened. I'm going to end with a comment on your MLA experience. I hate the MLA. I used to belong, but quit more than a decade ago. There are still fine people who go to the convention and some great writers who are invited to speak, but I've had too many encounters with people just like the ones you describe. They are so goddamn smug and rather, and rarely bother to get the facts right. Many of them are academic politicians and as critics, they affect a superiority that is maddening. And as you found out, they don't listen. But as Billy Crystal says, don't get me started. I hope our dialogue continues as ever. Carl Rollison, Uh I gave him my address. But then I have a PS. You're free to show this letter to anyone. I feel that after what has happened with Sontag, I need to mount a defense. I'd prefer just to go about my business. Well, really, that is what I do, but I just had to put on record my response to what seems like a campaign of misrepresentation. I know that sounds harsh, But if Sontag actually said we did not try to contact her, how can we draw any other conclusions? Okay, I'm going to read the next thing I got from uh, Samuel Delaney. uh, Is a letter marked February 13, 1997. Uh, And it's to Susan Sontag. He writes, Dear Susan Sontag, Back in 1992, when your extraordinary novel, The Volcano Lover, appeared, I interviewed you for Reflex magazine. The result was my review article, Under the Volcano, with Susan Sontag, that appeared on October 6, 1992, which utilized a fraction of the interview, about 25 lines out of the 42 transcript." referring to your experience from your twenties in a plane that had to make an emergency landing in a Nebraska cornfield. You were most cordial during the interview. I recall it with the greatest pleasure. I sent you a follow-up question about Gregory Batcock, which you answered by letter most graciously a week later. I teach the comparative in the Comparative Literature Department at the University of Massachusetts, where we have a mutual friend, Don Levine. Don Levine was a very close friend of Susan Sontag's who Lisa and I never got to interview. Then uh, Delaney goes on to say, I'm writing you because of the following. On December 16th, 1996, I was at a birthday party for a friend, Ted Klein, given by his wife at the Gramercy Arts Club. Carol Klein is a biographer. She wrote a very good biography of Aline Bernstein, the scenic designer who was Thomas Wolfe's girlfriend during the 30s. Carol belongs to a group of professional biographers, many of whom were at the party, among them Carl Rollison. Now at the bar, now at a table together, I found myself in conversation with him several times. My first impression of Rollison was of a highly intelligent man, well-spoken and quite sincere. In the course of a passing conversation, he mentioned that he was about to launch into a biography of you. That indeed he'd written an article about it in the Times that had recently appeared. He said he was part of a group of outlaw biographers. I wasn't sure what he meant. I didn't write an article for the Times, but my wife and I were featured in an article, which in fact Delaney reprints in the book I'm reading from right now, and I I will get to that eventually. Going back to me and Delaney, we both enthused over your fiction, about which he had some intelligent intelligent and appreciative comments to make. He also said that your on-photography had been the direct inspiration for a previous biography he'd written of Marilyn Monroe. I mentioned my 92 article, and then I also had a 40-odd page transcript of an interview I'd done with you that had not yet been edited. He said he would like to see it. When I got home, I sent him a copy of the article. I told him I had to clear with you, showing him the rest of the interview. He wrote me back with a pleasant and considered three-page single-space letter covering some of his ideas about biography. I decided immediately to write him back, though I was not about to send him the transcript of the rest of the interview until I'd spoken with you and promptly got the flu, was bedridden for three weeks, had to leave my sick bed on Friday for a conference in Detroit, began teaching the following Monday, and came home from Amherst on Wednesday night to a four-alarm fire at five o'clock, or a few minutes after five, Friday morning, February 1st. In the course of it, I still managed to draft a letter to Rollison answering his. I enclosed a copy, which you might like to see. A day after I had written the letter, but not yet gotten it in the mail. We were still cleaning up after the fire and, as of this writing, still have no gas for cooking. It's crockpot all the way. I saw Don Levine, that's a, again a friend of hers, at Fastbinder's, right. uh, Fastbinders World on a Wire at MoMA, Museum of Modern Art, showing you the film who showed me a copy of your letter asking people, that is, a copy of Sontag's letter, not to cooperate with the Rollisons. In the light of it, I considered rewriting my letter to him, but in the end I merely added a PS, which you now have. Though the letter indeed describes my memories of the interview, I included that information to convince him that you were a reasonable person about such things, not that he'd given me any reason to believe he thought you were otherwise and that he should consider contacting you directly. See, he's still under the impression that I had not contacted her. I wonder if his reluctance to do so might have something to do with the fact that most of the other biographers in his group write about media celebrities, actors and actresses whose image is all that they have to sell. That's not quite true. Um, Marion Mead, for example, wrote about Dorothy Parker. Um, not just about media celebrities. Um, I guess there were other biographers there who had written about media celebrities, sure. Actress and actresses whose image is all they have to sell and are thus going to be far more temperamental temperamental about how they are presented in print than someone who is fundamentally intellectual. Well, he's just mistaken about that. She was every bit as temperamental as any movie star or mafia figure for that matter. But that is all speculation. He may be basing his ideas on some of their experiences, which are probably not applicable for this situation. Actually, I wasn't basing my, my view of Sontag on the experiences of other people. I was basing my view for, on my experiences with other literary figures, uh, like Lillian Hellman and Martha Gellhorn, for example, uh, and um, with what I knew about the history of biography Uh, with people like Richard Aldington, who tried to do T.E. Lawrence, and a whole campaign of misinformation was organized against him. This has a very old history. He goes on, At any rate, as you wish, and as I have written to Rawlison, I will not show him the transcript of the remaining interview unless you change your mind about his project. Although, as you will see from my letter to him, we already have our disagreements, I still believe he is sincere in his admiration for you and that he is intelligent, though I also think for a professional biographer, he's got some odd notions that he might do better to put aside. I have not read his biographies, either of Monroe or Mailer, and so I have nothing on which to base any real evaluation of his competency or talents. If you have read them, then you're quite ahead of me. I want to assure you, however, that I will follow your wishes from now on, but I also want to apprise you of what has transpired up till now. I also sent Rollison a Xerox of a story of mine that centered on the trials and tribulations of an early biographer. With this letter, I include a copy for you. I don't know if either one of you will find it of interest, but if perhaps it amuses you both, who knows? If Rollison does get in contact with you, and again, we did contact her, As I have urged him to do, something that you have both smiled over might ease the way for better relations. If it does not, well, nothing lost but some paper. Best wishes, he signs it, Samuel R. Delaney. And then he includes a PS. I have, he emphasizes, not abandoned my desire to write an extended piece concentrating on your fiction. But the work of a full-time professor seems these days to take twice as much time as it did when I started at UMass eight years ago. Don, that's Don Levine, tells me you are in the midst or nearing the end of another novel. Certainly that is wonderful news. That was the novel In America. Um, and he has a footnote about that, about what the novel is about. I'll, I'll skip that footnote. I'm going to end here with Susan Sontag's letter to um, Samuel Delaney in response to what I just read. She says, Dear Chip, I can't believe you thought it necessary to remind me that we've done an interview together for Reflex, that you teach at UMass, and that you're a friend of Don, etc., etc. Chip, Chip, don't you think I remember anything? More important, don't you think I know who you are? Do you think I... I, Don't you think I read? Emphasize, read. You? Uh, Four question marks after you. I know there's such a thing as modesty, but hey... Okay, okay. Now your letter. Your warm, thoughtful letter. Here's how I see it. One, these people, there's a husband and a wife here, though they don't seem to have the same take on what they're doing, decided on their own to do a biography of me, got themselves a contract with the publisher, and then let me know about it. They are professional writers of, quote, unauthorized biographies. Well, that's true and it's not true. I've done both, authorized and unauthorized. I've done living figures, I had done living figures and I had done dead, dead figures. Rebecca West, for example, was, was um, already dead. And so was Lillian Hellman uh, before I did Sontag. Number two, she says, I did hear from them. The first I heard about their project in the form of a letter announcing that they had a contract to do my biography would, of course, like to have an interview with me. She puts in quotation marks, interview, but if I didn't cooperate, that wouldn't change anything. Three. Underlined. I am not interested in having a biography written. Chip, surely you can understand this. Lots of writers feel as I do. Unlike many writers now, I am not interested in becoming as famous as I could possibly be. I am interested in becoming the best writer I can be. That's all underlined. Three. I'm certainly not interested in having my biography written by people who do Marilyn Monroe and Muhammad Ali, as well as a bunch of writers. That's not my idea of the right level. That's all underlined, too. I still don't know where she got the idea that that I or the both of us had done a biography of Muhammad Ali. Never. We had never considered it. It had never been announced. It, It just was, it came out of nowhere. I don't know where that came from. She goes on to say, "You thought he was nice, maybe he is or was to you. What is important to me is the values he represents. See his statements in the New York Times piece Now that's a piece by Jannie Scott about unauthorized biographers, and I'm going to read that in the next podcast so to the answer to your plea on his behalf is that in my opinion in this if this matter if my opinion in this matter." counts for anything with you, don't cooperate with him. Don't show him the unedited transcript, etc. Please don't encourage him to be in contact with me. Interesting that he spoke to you as if he didn't have a wife and collaborator. That's just a misimpression. I've never excluded Lisa from my talk about this biography. He, they have been in contact with me. The letter I mentioned above. They are also in contact with er, everyone I have ever known. They even tracked down a nice man, now a school teacher who used to clean my market, my apartment 15 years ago. He got in touch with me to say that he'd refused to talk to them, assuming that I wouldn't want him to. I've covered that issue of dealing with housekeepers uh, in an earlier podcast. So I won't go over that again. She goes on, but of course, they they can't possibly do anything worthwhile Underline, without my cooperation. My time in Vietnam, my three years in and out of Sarajevo, and many aspects of my life in Europe, none of this they can write about without the documents that I possess. And they know this. If they were serious, they would have asked for my cooperation before signing a contract. They know the only biographer worth doing has to have my cooperation, but that's not their game. Chip, you will, of course, do as you see fit. I can only tell you what I am that I am dismayed and saddened by this project. Warmest good wishes to you and for all you're doing. She signs it, Susan. And then she says, Chip, please read the Times article to the end. Okay, she had certain theories about what would happen when a husband and wife, that is uh, Carl Rawlsson and Lisa Paddock, what would happen if we actually got to the end of this biography. But I'm going to save that for next time. Jenny Scott's article, the title of which is It's a Lonely Way to Pay the Bills for Unauthorized Biographers. The World is Very Hostile by Jenny Scott. October 6, 1996. I will read that article and comment on it. Um, And then I will go on with some more correspondence between Delaney and Sontag. Uh, And then Delaney's letter to me, which is quite a long one, and my response to him. So this podcast continues. This is round five. We will be going on to round six. Thanks for listening.